I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of the Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from Secret Lydian, a text from the Song of Solomon, set to music by Antoine Brumel. This piece, which you can listen to complete at the end of this podcast, is in the Anne Boleyn Songbook, and this is part of a series of podcasts supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Spem in Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and York University on that collection of music. One of the striking things about the contents of the Anne Boleyn Songbook is the number of pieces that have Marian texts, that is, texts about the Virgin Mary, and texts from the Old Testament book, The Song of Solomon. I talked about why this might be to the Reverend Dr. Lisa Wong, who teaches at Trinity College at the University of Toronto in her office there, and, indeed, why the extended love song that is the Song of Solomon is in the Bible at all. Well, Lisa, um, Anne Boleyn's songbook has these texts from the Old Testament Song of Songs, a book that's a love song dialogue between Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. It doesn't even mention God at all. So why did this end up in the Bible? Why did this book end up in the Bible at all? Well, whenever we think about why the Song of Songs is part of both Hebrew and Christian scripture, we need to remember that for the early Christians, scripture was never only taken literally. So the literal meaning of the biblical text was always the beginning of a whole process of interpretation, which resulted in what is often termed the spiritual meaning of the text. So it's this spiritual meaning of the Song of Songs which ultimately finds it a place in the canon of scripture, both for the Hebrew people and for the Christian people. So the Christian people learned to interpret scripture in this way, both from uh, the Jewish people and from the Greek tradition. So this was already something that was being done in the Jewish tradition, which is why it's in the Hebrew canon of scripture. And having inherited that whole canon, Christians began a similar process of interpretation of the Song of Songs, but adding on a Christian level of meaning. So spiritual interpretations of scripture can take many different forms. One of which is allegory, that's a very familiar form. There's also typological interpretations, what are called anagogical interpretations, moral interpretations. As early as the late second century and into the early third century, there was a stream of interpretation of the Song of Songs, which was allegorical. So it saw this love story between this uh, beloved and her, um, the figure of the King of Solomon as being about actually, on a spiritual level, Christ and the church, a love story between Christ and the church. So Christ is the he and uh, the church is the she. Is the bride, right. Or the individual soul and Christ. So the soul being the she and Christ Mm -hmm. being the bride. Latin is anima, which is a feminine noun. Exactly, and then suke also in Greek. Oh. So that was a stream that became very popular. It was um, engaged in a very uh, complete way by Origen, the author Origen. Mm -hmm. When's he writing? In the early third century. And he 
became very influential on all the subsequent um, fathers through his writings. So he was a big influence on the Cappadocian fathers, and uh, he's also very influential in the spiritual tradition of the, of the Eastern Church. So that is a whole tradition that then gets picked up uh, in the Middle Ages and is carried forward into the early modern period. So that is... And that's our period just beginning. The, er the so-called early modern is starting, we'll say, with the Renaissance. Um, so it's just when uh, this songbook's being collected. That's exactly it. So you have um, Gregory the Great, for instance, taking um, origins, interpretations into the Middle Ages, the Cistercians, Bernard of Clairvaux and his followers do a large body of work interpreting the Song of Songs, and then into the early modern periods are, of course, St. John of the Cross and the Carmelite tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very central text for them. So it's something that's very much in the forefront of Christian spirituality. So what do you think the significance of these uh, Song of Song texts in Anne Boleyn's songbook uh, is? Why are they in that book? So the very interesting thing to notice is that fully one quarter of the pieces in the Anne Boleyn songbook are Marian motets. Mm -hmm. And the Song of Song texts that are used in the songbook are those which were adopted by the medieval liturgy for the Marian feast days. Mm -hmm. So things like Tota Pulchra S and Secret Lilium are used in the medieval uh, liturgy for the masses and the offices for the Marian feast days, various Marian feast days, the presentation, immaculate conception, things like that. So that is the context in which those texts appear. Now that's something that is also of great antiquity. For instance, you will find in the what are called the transitus Mariae texts. So these um, early texts describing the life and death of, of Mary. Um, there's actually a use of the Secret Lilium text to describe mm -hmm. Our Lady in, in, in one of those transitus Mariae texts. And the Tolta Pulchra S, that verse from the Song of Songs is actually lifted right out and then altered slightly to apply to Mary. So Mary becomes the beloved in, uh, in, in, that, story, in that narrative. So the beloved might be um, the Queen of Sheba. The beloved might be a soul. Um, and the beloved might be the church. Exactly. Uh, and might be Mary. There's exactly. all these different ways of interpreting it. Exactly. And that would be your sort of movement from the literal level through an allegorical, a typological meaning, and then an anagogical meaning. So this is a natural movement. It might seem odd uh, how did Mary end up in there, but it's a natural movement insofar as Mary is a type of the church herself. So Mary is everything that the church is and becomes. She is already. So that is a very natural movement for, for those texts to be adopted by a Marian context. So that is the context in which those texts appear in, in the Anne Boleyn storybook our songbook. So we need to see them in that context. Now, now that's, so that's a very specific context, but why would uh, Marian devotion take up a quarter of the yeah, content a of, yeah. of a songbook for a young woman of this time? 
the reason it would be that a Marian spirituality is being commended to the recipient of the songbook. So a Marian spirituality in which we recognize the role of Mary in our redemption. So a particularly important part of Christian spirituality, uh, which is based on the fact that both the East and West from ancient times understood Mary to be her role to be absolutely central, as central as that is of Christ in mm. the redemption story. So a lot of these feast days that we talk about are incredibly great antiquity and are surrounded with a large body of theology written by the fathers to unpack the meaning of those various mysteries. And am I right in understanding that in the Renaissance and beyond, that this sort of devotion to Mary sort of has a sort of resurgence? Because I know that um, so many uh, masses are for Our Lady and uh, Monteverdi's Vespers by just after 1600, the, uh, for the Blessed Virgin. Is there a resurgence? Because there seems to be lots of music and settings of these, uh, not just in this songbook, but in everywhere. It just seems to be explode or in the 15 and early 1600s. Do you think that's true? Well, it certainly seems to be the case that there is a lot of very rich material out there all the way through the Middle Ages and up to this mm. time. And I think that is um, one of the great legacies of Western Christian spirituality is that this kind of literary and musical context in which a Marian spirituality is explored is very, very rich. Mm -hmm. It's and it's very accessible. It's accessible to yeah. anybody. Right? Uh, yeah, see, I mean, there's a, a, a songbook for a young woman full of uh, terrific love songs that happen to be in Latin. I mean. That's, that's what else could you hope for? for <laughs> it's so it's something that is spoken in a language that is familiar to meet people and which is accessible. So for instance, no one is trying to communicate the importance of Mary in the redemption, the importance of Mary in our spiritual lives. No one is trying to communicate that in dry theological terms in the kind of expressions, musical expressions you're talking mm -hmm. about. That has its place. There are a lot of theological treatises about this topic. But this expression in music and poetry and all of these ways are so accessible to people. So it is something that feeds people's spirituality on a popular level in a very big way in the mm -hmm. West. So the music is kind of a direct apprehension of the uh, of the, these... Uh, if, if you haven't got the patience to read Bernard of Clairvaux or something, you can directly apprehend it by listening to uh, Secret Lilium by, uh, uh, from the Anne Boleyn songbook. It's a, in, a, in a way, it's one kind of an expression mm -hmm. of something that becomes core to people's spirituality. So you have these, I guess what you would call ecclesial expressions of a Marian piety, so certain kinds of prayers like the Little Office, which had their uh, popularity increased by the the sort of books of hours that were produced oh, yeah, at the time. Yeah. Um, the rosary is another expression, ecclesial expression of prayer. But how powerful it is for people to have these things expressed in music and poetry, in poetic texts, and to have, for instance, these liturgical, really liturgical uses of the Song of Songs take this kind mm -hmm. of an artistic musical form. So you're not only encountering it in the context of the liturgy, liturgy now, you're being offered it as something that you can be very close to, 
uh, that you can even contemplate, even at your leisure, right? Mm -hmm. with, with, a, with a format like this. So that's something that's very powerful. It's in a sense combining um, this kind of artistic expression, which is at the fingertips of those who have songbooks like this. And it keeps it before their attention so it's a very um, moving, in a way, a very motivating mm -hmm. way of passing on that kind of spirituality to a young person mm -hmm. and to understand that uh, a young person needs to have this kind of the fullness of the tradition in when they receive a, a Christian education, mm -hmm. to have that, that part of it taken in and integrated, really, because you don't really want everything to be only just a matter of an intellectual engagement. Um, you want... Uh, spirituality to be a, a holistic engagement. And if, as seems possible, this is started, this songbook started as a collection for a royal wedding, um, it, it, uh, you know, the, the Queen of Heaven, Mary, and fits into it. Perhaps uh, in terms of the context of a potential wedding, mm -hmm. the imagery and the metaphors in the Song of Songs, particularly in its liturgical expression, also speaks to what is called the mystical wedding between Christ and his church. Mm -hmm. And that is something that has always uh, in the West been understood to be um, a meaning of marriage, so that marriage points to, points beyond itself to that eschatological reality. So it's quite appropriate to have something like that uh, in the songbook if that were something in the, in the historical context mm -hmm. going on because what it would do then is remind the person that, you know, this, this marriage is contracted for many, many reasons, many earthly reasons, many political reasons. It will affect you on a personal level. But to point the person beyond and over that to this mystical reality, this theological reality of what marriage is, is to point to that the wedding banquet of the Lamb, which is an eschatological reality. So that would be an incredibly important message to be conveyed by the presence mm -hmm. of those texts. So, and so the earthly marriage is seen as a sort of a, a, a metaphor a or sign. a type yeah. uh, uh, for this divine marriage of um, uh, the church to, uh, to God and, and the end. Uh, you use the word es eschatological. Um, what does that mean exactly? Tell us what that means. So pertaining to the end of the all end things. The end time. So exactly. it's the final exactly. marriage of, of creation back to uh, God. Exactly. Let's hear the setting of Secret Lilium by Antoine Brumel, who died around 1512, sung by the musicians in ordinary, Julia Morrison, soprano, Whitney O'Hearn, mezzo, Catherine Anderson, contralto, and me, John Edwards, playing lute. All led by Hallie Fischel, the other director of MIO, singing alto. Mm -hmm. 